Well, it's Thanksgiving this week, and I thought before we'd have the word, uh, we might ask if anybody has any testimonies they'd like to share. Anything going on in your life? The Lord's shown you something or did something, or you want to give thanks for something? I'd like to turn it over to you for a few moments here. Um, does anyone have anything they want to testify of this week? I know there's, there's a lot. You're just trying to get it all together. What exactly should I share? So I'll give you just a moment here. Yes. It's so nice to have friends and family, right? Amen. Yeah. I'm thankful too. <laughs> encourage you. I want to take more opportunities as we move on to let you say some things. I don't have to be the only voice up here. Um, I'd like to hear what the Lord's doing in your life, and uh, if you have a testimony through the week, or you think, oh, this is something I'd like to share, a revelation from the Word, or, or just something good, you know, think about letting us in on it, you know, sharing it with us. So, any last last calls? Okay, well, I'm, yeah, go ahead. Well, I introduced uh, my daughter and son-in-law and uh, the grandson, Neil, downstairs, but uh, they are in Huntsville, Wednesday night, so um, we're very happy to have them. And they came from? Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton, Illinois. Okay, well, we're glad to have you. Thanks for coming. <laughs> I'm thankful for you all, and uh, we have a dedicated group here, and... Uh, it's been a good, you know, we've had some some trials with the foot and things, but uh, it's been a good four and a half months now, and uh, and it's going to keep keep going. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to finish today from the book of Jonah. We started it last week, and last week, if you remember, we were looking at uh, a lot of different things, but Jonah's actually remembered mostly for running the wrong direction, right? And uh, last week we discovered, actually, there were some pretty good things about him that we don't often bring up. For example, he, he was able to uh, not think of himself in the storm on the ship. He didn't panic with the rest of the sailors, but he offered himself. He said, cast me out, it's my fault. So he, he was honest with himself and honest with the others, and he loved not his own life, that, that he allowed them to cast him out of the ship. And we looked at how that was a lot like Jesus loving not his own life, and he was cast up on a cross. And both actions saved people. 
And Jonah calmed the storm by being cast out of the ship. But Jesus was greater. He calmed a storm by speaking a word. And because of him being lifted up and because of the word, we can be calm through the storms. We can sleep through the storms. And Jonah was able to sleep through a storm even when he was disobedient, which says something about it. It wasn't good that he was disobedient, but it was good that he understood that God is merciful. He, he wasn't he wasn't racking his brain, beating himself up. And I find that uh, one of the first miracles in the story, that he actually could sleep when he was running the wrong direction. But why could he sleep? He, he was at peace with God. He knew that God was merciful, and that was one of the reasons that he turned the other direction. He didn't want to see God be merciful to the Ninevites, who he was called to. So we learned about God's mercy, and then... When he was cast into the sea and he was swallowed up by the great fish, again, we talked about that's a fantastic thing, but if God is God, God can do the fantastic. And praise God that he can do the extraordinary because that means nobody's in a situation that God can't work or deliver them from. You may feel like you're in the belly of some giant fish right now and you're covered up with gobbledygook and acids from the stomach and it's taking you out, but you know what? You can come out of it because Jesus came out of the grave. That was the sign of Jonah. He, he came out. And so that's the good news from the book. And we learned that God was merciful to a stubborn, rebellious, I want to say Christian. Jonah represents the Christian. He was stubborn and rebellious, yet God was good to him. Today we're going to look at more God being good to stubborn, rebellious people in the world, in our lives. Anybody live or work or go to school around stubborn, rebellious people? Uh, they're everywhere, right? And we, and we often fall into this too, but praise God that he is merciful. And the sign of Jonah is that he... Well, the sign of Jonah was that Jesus was raised from the dead just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Jesus was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights and rose from the dead. But also, there's more of the sign of Jonah in Jesus in that it's the sign of the gospel. It's God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he sent Jonah to tell them they're in trouble if they don't do something. And Jonah didn't even say that. He was sent to the Ninevites and said, yet 40 days and, and Nineveh will be destroyed. So... The sign of the gospel, it starts with the bad news. The bad news is nobody's going to get away with anything, and Nineveh wasn't going to get away with anything. The time stamp was on them, 40 days. What's going on in our culture, in our world, it not, might not be 40 days, but there is a time stamp on it, and nobody's going to get away with anything. For the time being, people may think that God doesn't see or God doesn't care and is not worried about this, but... The Bible reveals that there is an end and there is a day of account that is coming. And that was what uh, the message was to Nineveh. Okay, so the sign of Jonah, the sign of the gospel, God so loved the world. These were cruel, ruthless people, enemies of Israel, and yet God wanted to warn them. He wanted to warn them out of a sense of love and care for them. And Jonah was the missionary, a reluctant missionary, but he was a missionary. In the same way, Jesus was a missionary. You know, we think of Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Kings, the prophet, but he was a missionary. If you think about it, he came from his home. He left the glories of heaven to come deal with 
obstinate, rebellious people on this earth. He left his comforts, his glory to, to walk among us in the midst of corruption and sin. And he wasn't a reluctant missionary. He was a willing missionary. And so we see Jonah was a reluctant missionary. Jesus was a willing missionary. Where does that leave us? Who are we following? Because if you are a Christian, if you have been changed by the Lord God, if you understand the message that nobody's going to get away with anything, and yet there's a provision for us, there's an answer for us, there's a hope for us, there's salvation that is available, then that makes you and I missionaries. You know, I'll say it over and over. I tell other pastors I meet, you know, you're not just a pastor, you're a missionary. In fact, this is one of the biggest mission fields right now, our, our homeland, America. Missionaries aren't just people who go overseas, although there's, you know, it's great to do that too. But the whole idea of us being here still after we've placed our faith in Jesus is that we have a kingdom mandate. We have a kingdom mandate to grow and know the Lord and also to bring forth his kingdom. Not that we bring it forth, but we're his body on this earth. We're not just taken to heaven the minute we say yes to Jesus. He's got something for us to do. They say, well, I can't preach, or I can't teach, or whatever. You, know, you don't have to just preach or teach to be a missionary. Some missionaries just pray, and they're just devoted to praying for those that preach and teach, or for those that need help. And other missionaries are givers, and they just they give, they support the kingdom work. But whoever you are, whatever gifts you have, they all merge together. We all have to speak at times. We all need to give. We all need to help and show acts of mercy and helps to those in need. But it's all with a kingdom mindset. And so uh, I talk about missions. I'll go to missions conferences. And when I get to speak, I'll, I'll say it's not just about reaching the lost. In fact, most missions teachings is about reaching the lost. I say it starts with kingdom and understanding who you are in the kingdom and that God has a kingdom plan, a kingdom kingdom purpose for us and for the world. Now Jonah, the reluctant missionary, went to Nineveh and more or less preached the end of a kingdom. Forty days and yet Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the end. The end is coming. The end of a kingdom. Jesus, the missionary, came and said, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so you have two contrasts here. One, the world kingdom ending. Two, God's kingdom beginning. And that's what happened. That was the good news. That was the gospel that Jesus preached. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jonah didn't really preach the good news. He just preached the bad news. But everything was about these uh, ultimate ends of kingdoms or the kingdom of the world, and the beginning of the kingdom of Christ. That said, you start with the kingdom mandate, and you you see yourself as an ambassador of God's kingdom, so everything we do should have a kingdom uh, goal in focus. So we want to do small groups, it's to extend God's kingdom. We want to decorate the church, it's to extend God's kingdom. Well, how does decorating the church extend God's kingdom? It just makes it inviting for others and uh, it shows there's life, and we want to be an advertisement for Jesus. Jesus was, Jesus was all about life. And Christmas is coming, and Christmas is a, a great kingdom time to have an opportunity to share about life, because a lot of people will be open to hearing about what Christmas is about, because everybody likes Christmas, right? But not everybody understands just where it came from or why 
you know, what it has in connection to Jesus. And in Christmas is not a holy holiday that has been uh, legislated through the scripture. It's a, it's a cultural holiday, but it's all based on the incarnation of Jesus. So that gives us an opportunity to be that representation to the world out there and to tell them this is what it's all about. So God cares for the lost, and Jonah went to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria and Israel's sworn enemy. And uh, Jonah had no interest in their salvation. So that's why he ran, but then he came back. Why did he have no interest in their salvation? Well, like I said, they were his enemies, and he couldn't see the way God saw. And God so loved the world, even when the world was enemies of him, but, but God cares for his enemies. And so you say, well, that's God. How can I care for my enemies? It, Jesus told us, love your enemies. That's a hard thing to do, right? It's, it's impossible to do if you don't have the spirit of Christ working in you, if you don't have the vision of Christ and, and the truth of his word, which brings life to you. So we're going to look at this. Why did God care for the Ninevites? Well, for, for the first reason, he saw them differently. And if we want to care for people who rub us the wrong way or people who may be considered our enemies, we have to look at them differently. We don't look at them as they are at the moment. In Jonah 4, verse 11, God said, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? He's saying, Should I not pity these folks? They don't know their right hand from their left. And I really believe that this phrase, they don't know their right hand from, from their left, is an indication that what God is saying here is that they're out of their minds. They don't even know their right hand from their left. They're so steeped in sin that they're mad. You say, well, that's, is, are you sure that's right? Ecclesiastes 9.3 tells us, if we have Ecclesiastes 9.3, tells us that madness is in their heart while they live. In, in Ecclesiastes 9.3, it's talking about the way of man is sin and madness is in their heart while they live. Sin is madness. Sin is the ultimate problem in your life. You say, well, no, it's this person or no, it's this situation. Well, we, we are living in a fallen world and when we sin or when others sin, they are inviting the destruction. They are inviting the curse. They are inviting the devil's inroads into their lives. They're inviting the wrath of God. Sin, no matter how tempting and how lovely it may seem, look, or feel, is an invitation to a dreadful end. And it is the reason, it's the source of all problems in this world. It may be because of your sin that you're suffering something. But it might not be your sin. It may be because of somebody else's sin. Or it may just be because sin had brought the curse in this world. We're living in a fallen world, a broken world. It may be demonic influences that are sinful and, and not right. But the problem is, is that uh, we don't see it correctly. It's like not knowing your right hand from your left. If you're giving in to sin constantly, or if, you, if you're tempted by sin, you've got to remember... You don't know your right hand from your left. 
you have to learn to see things as God sees them. And from God's perspective, not knowing your right hand from your left, we see that sin is stupid. Sin, and you know, once you get this fixed in your mind, it gets easier to resist sin. It gets easier to resist temptation. That's stupid. Why would I want to go down that path? Oh, it's just, but you know, I have such, such a desire for this. But you're not looking past the uh, immediate desire or gratification. You need to look past that and see, where's that taking me? That's not taking me to a good place. Sin is stupidity. I said it once before, it's an old saying, I don't know where it came from, but sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. So God sees people differently. He sees that they don't know their right hand from their left. That's why we preach the gospel, we preach the truth. We want to see the truth set people free. It's not the truth that sets people free, but it's knowing the truth that will set people free. And as we know the truth, we start to learn our right hand from our left. We start to grow. And as we grow as Christians, it's a process. We may still be toddlers and we still may be having some issues, but we could, we're on a path moving forward. And that gets us more and more into our right minds. So in Ecclesiastes 9.3, it says madness is in their hearts, but God takes away that madness as he speaks the truth. It sets us free, puts us in our right minds. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a, a sound mind. Uh, that's from uh, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, one of the Timothys there. But a sound mind. Uh, and to be in God's righteousness is to have a sound mind. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So that's one reason God has mercy and cares for stubborn, rebellious people. Another reason is because he simply delights to have mercy. Romans 11.32 says that God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. He just he wants to have mercy. This is this is a, a wonderful truth because you know when somebody has wronged us or when somebody is in a really bad way, you know we tend to think naturally, oh they'll get what's coming to them, and we'd rather see them get what's coming to them. Revenge. You know how many movies you watch where somebody wants to get and we cheer them on, go get revenge. They deserve it. They deserve what's coming to them. And that's how we see things in the natural. God sees things a little bit differently. And you know, Jonah did not want to see mercy come upon the Ninevites. But contrast that to Jesus. When Jesus was standing before Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem because he knew what was coming to them. And he wept because he'd rather see them turn and be saved rather than get what's coming to them. So why, you know, how can... How can we love our enemies? God loves his enemies because his ways are so much greater than, than our ways. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9 uh, speaks to this. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is an awesome verse, and it's talking about mercy. You know, a lot of people confuse this verse, and they use this to comfort people, and when people are going through a tragedy or something, say, well, we don't know, but God's ways are higher. We just, God must have had some purpose in this. You can't use that verse to say that. That verse is talking about his desire that the wicked forsake their ways. This verse is talking about how he would have mercy on the wicked, which is a higher way than we think. Man's ways are different. Man wants to get revenge. Man wants to see their enemies go down with the ship. God would rather see them turn and forsake their ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and praise God that they're not, because if his thoughts were like our thoughts, none of us would be here, because we'd have gotten what we deserve. But he sees beyond that. He has a higher thought, and basically what's saying is mercy is higher than vindication or revenge. Mercy is higher. Uh, Mercy over sacrifice. Mercy, Mercy triumphs over justice. Mercy is as high as the heavens. Mercy is higher. So think about you know, what I'm saying here. This is really radical stuff in the culture we're living in. We live in cancel culture, right? Oh, you did something back in high school. Therefore, we're going to eliminate you. We're going to take you off of Facebook, Twitter, or whatever. You're not going to get a job now, and you're going to be shunned. And, and there's no... There's, there's no option on the table to show any mercy. Cancel culture means you are different from me, you disagree, you offend me, therefore you are canceled. And I don't care what happens to you after that. There's no reasoning, there's no talking about it, there's no higher way, like the Lord says, he, he would desire that there be a change. Mercy is so much higher, and we are living in a culture that is so unmerciful And what's going to happen at judgment? You reap what you sow. It's a dreadful thing. And so when someone is not showing mercy in this culture, instead of saying, well, they're going to get what what they're sowing, you know, I want to be more along the Lord's lines. I'm not saying I always am, but that's what our goal, our standard is to shoot for the Lord's lines. We need to be pitying them, pity them like Nineveh. The Lord pitied Nineveh. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh? And say, you know, don't bring yourself down into this thing. There's mercy available. It's higher than the world's ways. It's higher than man's ways. And we want to walk in the highest. That's what the Lord has for us. And we can by his grace. So we praise God that his ways are higher, that he had mercy on us. And I wanted to bring this up about his mercy because a lot of people think, oh, he had mercy on me, but now that I've received him, I just seem to be falling apart all the time. How can he possibly keep loving me, having mercy on me? But remember, he was going to Nineveh to seek his enemies. And when he sought you and me, we were actually his enemies. People don't think about it that way. Yeah, I was a sinner. Yeah, I wasn't great. But we don't think about it as we were his enemies. But let's look at Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So this tells us that when we were reconciled, we were enemies. 
And if you think of Jonah and the situation, that this was a ruthless, cruel enemy of Israel. They did horrible things. If you go back and research it, and I, and I had researched it, but I confess I failed to be able to get the details for this particular message. But they were terrible. They did terrible things. And yet God was going to show them mercy. And we in the spirit, we may not have done as terrible things as Nineveh did to the Israelites, but in the spirit, in, in, the, in the world of the spirit, in the ways of heaven, in the ways of earth, we were at enmity against God. And he saw us because of sin as enemies. But he didn't want to leave us as enemies. He wanted to reconcile us. It was his idea. We weren't seeking him. He sought us. You weren't seeking him. I wasn't seeking him. He sought us. And then perhaps we start to get a taste of this. We start seeking him more, and he, he invited us to come in further. But being reconciled was his, his idea. He reached out to us while we were enemies. So here's the problem that I used to have that I didn't know better. I didn't know my right hand from my left, but he reconciled me. But now that I've become born again a Christian in good graces with God, and I know the truth and the word, now I know my right hand from my left, and I still mess up, and I still have sin in my life. And so that must not be good. I must, I'm not going to make much headway with the Lord. The Lord can't use me, and I'm a mess. I'm, in fact, even more guilty now because I'm accountable for what I know. And those who know more are more responsible, Right? Well, that's what I was taught, and that's what I believed, and it, and it brought me down every time. I thought I was making progress, and I'd mess up, and I was like, man, I should know better. But this verse is contradicting that whole mindset. It says, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, if the Lord loved us enough when we didn't know any better, now that we do know better, he loves us even more and will reconcile us even greater, be saved by his life, much more, much more. There's a difference. It doesn't say you will be much more held accountable now that you know better. And I think a lot of people beat themselves up, if, at least if you're like me. Maybe some of you aren't like me, and that's a good thing. Um, but if you are like me, you might beat yourself up over things, and you're very introspective and thinking about how you fall short all the time, and you should know better. Well, this is your verse, much more being reconciled. You've already been reconciled to the Lord. Grace and mercy are not just at conversion. They continue throughout your walk with God. Grace and mercy continue. It is not just at conversion. And when you can grasp that and walk with that knowledge that God much more has grace and mercy for you, being his child, his beloved child now, that frees you. And you don't want to hold on to this self-introspection and beating yourself up and things and, oh, I messed up. All you do when you mess up is say, Lord, thank you. Much more am I saved by your life. Your life is not snuffed out by this mess up or this sin. And, and when you do that, you're, that's, a, that's called repentance. That's turning to the Lord and he will do the rest. He'll shape you up. Well, I, I keep messing up. Well, I keep turning back to him and he will shape you up. Amen. So, God sees what you can become because that's part of his process. As we trust in him, he changes us. He sees what we can become. 
And so he delights to have mercy. He says even in Romans 8.29 that you have been glorified. He sees your glorified self. When you put your faith in Jesus, he loves you. He sees you through the blood of Jesus. He sees your glorified self. And um, that's, that's something that we need to learn to see by faith. Not that we look at our glory, but we see that God sees us through Jesus. And he accepts us. And grace and mercy continue as we continue on with him. So to conclude that whole point that God cares is a, is a, a wonderful incentive to worship God, to walk with God, knowing that you have a God that cares for you. And I don't mean that in a hallmark greeting card type of way, but I mean that in a this can bring power into your life kind of way. When you realize that there are little g gods in this world that people bow down and kowtow to who want to submit. When there's a, a little g god of Islam, which really means submission, people submit in fear. Uh, there are Hindu demons that people submit to. There are Buddhist demons that people bow down in temples to and fear that if they do anything wrong, they're, they're going to be uh, having bad luck or reincarnated as a dog in the next life. You know, there's a lot of fear and oppressive spirits out there that uh, disguise themselves as little g-gods. And it's a terrible thing to be under that kind of bondage. Here we have the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the, the creator of all heaven and earth, who has every right to be forceful and strict and, and crushing over us, and yet he's merciful, he cares, He's a God that invites us to come into his presence. He gives us uh, boldness to come to a throne of grace. And this is the God who is over all. This is the winning Lord. This is the one who will remain when all the others have fallen by the wayside, and we will remain with him. So we can wake up in the morning. We think we got a day ahead of us, but God cares. Well, why hasn't he fixed things? I've been calling out to him. Why hasn't he fixed it yet? Oh, he will. You know, he said, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. There's a time, a perfect timing for God to move and work. He's going to wait, be patient in some cases. In other cases, he's preparing us or he's preparing the situation. But just because something doesn't happen instantly doesn't mean that he doesn't care. You have to be convinced and cross the line and say he cares and he cares for me. And whatever it is that might threaten, whatever it is that might suggest otherwise... Remember, it took 40 days before he solved the Nineveh problem or that he would destroy it. This world, like I said, seems to go on, but he cares. He's not going to let it go on forever. He's going to bring in a, a greater kingdom. You just, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. But you never give up that, that thought that he cares. And when you hold that, he'll come through. But sometimes he waits to see if we'll wait for him. And that's what faith is all about, waiting upon the Lord. All right, so what happened when uh, Nineveh was preached at? What Nineveh will be overthrown in 40 days. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, In Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, it says that this is the next miracle that happened. People of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
This was a miracle because they they had their enemy Jonah, the Israelite, was preaching to them not so nice message of oh God loves you, but you're going to be destroyed. It's amazing that they didn't stone Jonah. You know, and, and Israel has been less merciful to their prophets in the past when they came up with a word of warning and say, okay, throw them in the dungeon. But there, what did they do? In Nineveh, they proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth they, they, from the greatest to the least of them. Here is a revival. They responded with sorrow, godly sorrow. So there's something to learn from this. When the Lord presents a warning to us, how do we respond? Do we just want to escape and have fire insurance and believe in God so we can escape hell? Well, I'll give you a confession. That's what led me to the Lord. First, somebody told me that I was going to go to hell if I didn't believe in Jesus. I thought there were many ways to get to heaven, but there's only one way, and Jesus made the way. And if you don't believe in Jesus, even if you're a great person, you can't get there any other way. And hell is what's reserved for those who are not reconciled to God. The only way to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. And why would you want to go any other way that's not tried and proven and and the ultimate and the authority overall? But anyway, you know, they told me that, and I went through a process. I've got a long testimony about when I came to the Lord. But in the beginning, it was actually I didn't want to go to hell. And I finally acknowledged that this was the truth and I I wanted to be in the right place. And that's okay. But as I grew and I started reading the word more and understanding more how sin grieves the heart of God and how sin is our ultimate enemy and we don't know our right hand from our left and things like that. And I read uh, works of devoted saints from the past and talking about I started to understand just how great my salvation was. I started to feel bad about my sin. And I started to sorrow about my sin. And so if you haven't had that experience, ask God to open your eyes to show you the horrors of sin. I think some of you in here already have had that. Some of you may not have. But when you see just how awful and how offensive sin is, it turns what Jesus did for you into even a greater, extraordinary act of love and mercy in our lives. And the dangerous thing here that I'm telling you about is I could go for years after I learned how bad it was that I'd beat myself up. I didn't understand that grace and mercy wasn't just for conversion, but for all along the way. So don't just go one-sided and say, well, I want to know how bad my sin is because that'll destroy you. And then you'll keep looking and you'll keep going further into the depths of your heart and say, I can never get out of it. And you'll start to drown in it. No, you have to go to grace and mercy and and look to Jesus all the time because his grace continues. He's interceding for us continually before the throne. Hebrews 7.25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. And that's the power of the gospel. It's good news. No matter how bad, ugly your sin looks, no matter how sorrowful it should make you, you shouldn't stay in that sorrow. You get out by faith and say, thank you, Jesus, because that's what is what he's done and provided for us. But uh, Nineveh didn't have that good news of Jesus. They just got sorrowful. And and they didn't even have you know any hope but they, they humbled themselves. So we continue in verse 6. It says, 
Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. Here's a guy, the king, and he disrobed himself. What does that represent? He humbled himself. He took off his kingship, his royalty, his majesty, his right to his throne and his authority, and he submitted to the higher king of kings, the Lord. The Lord is king. I will take off my robe. And so the same with us. When we come to Jesus, we take off our robes. We leave our old clothing behind, and we're clothed in salvation. We're clothed in righteousness. It's not us in charge anymore. We're not the authority anymore. We give the authority to him, and we trust in him. Verse 7, And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. There's confession. He's turning to the Lord. He humbles himself. He confesses the violence that is in their hands, and he says, turn, turn. Salvation, faith does not happen without some kind of corresponding action. If you really believe that what God says is true, you're going to turn. If you believe what I've been telling you, that sin is ugly and awful and and it's the source of all your problems, if you really believe that, it's not just going to be a mental thing, but you're going to turn from it. Not as a way to earn salvation, but because you believe that it's bad and you don't want what's bad for you. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Okay. So, There's a turning. And then verse 9, the king says, Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? As I said, Jonah didn't preach the answer. Jonah preached the problem. And yet the king was bold enough to say, Who can tell but that maybe God will have mercy? And how you view God is usually how it plays out. Remember that the parable where Jesus talks about the talents and he gave one servant five talents and the servant invested it and got five more back at the end because he, you know, he was faithful. Another one with two talents got two more back. But there was one servant that said, I knew you were a hard man and I just hid the talent and I didn't want to upset you. And, and the answer was, you knew I was a hard man? Well, I'll show you a hard man then. And he took the servant and uh, took the talent and gave it to the others. So what I'm saying here is how do you view God? How do you look to him? You look to him as a hard man over you. It's going to affect your life. It's going to affect your relationship. You're going to see him as a hard man all the time, and it's going to slow you down. You can still get to heaven having a hard man who tolerates you and says, well, I made the way. Or you can have freedom and look at him as, who knows, maybe he's merciful. We know he is. The king here. Took a, took a chance, took a shot with faith. And what happened in verse 10? God canceled out the decree against him. God saw their works. They turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. How do you view God? Do you view him as looking at you with mercy and how he wants to help you and bless you and love you? Are you looking at him through Jesus? That's the answer right there. How can I tell if God loves me? Jesus. Look at the cross. 
Why did Jesus go to that cross? What did he suffer at that cross? And ultimately what we read about is repentance here. The king repented. The people repented. Repentance just means everything we read. He turned. They humbled themselves. They turned. And God honors that repentance. It's a work of the heart. It wasn't because they fasted and did all these things and even made the animals fast. That's pretty interesting, too. But it was because of their hearts. And the Gospels, all throughout the New Testament, we see it's the heart that God wants. Well, even in uh, Samuel, when he's looking for David, he said, man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. If you have a repentant heart, God's going to honor that. And sometimes you don't do as well as you want to do. God looks at the heart more than the actions. And as we grow, we grow. You know, a child draws a picture, scribbles a picture, gives it to his grandparents, right? And it's just a bunch of scribble. And the grandparents don't say, wow, you just did this wrong, and you weren't in the lines, and go back and do this over. How could you give this to me? Who's, any grandparents say that? No. No, they, they love the... This child put their heart in this pit. Thank you. They, they smile. And guess what? How many refrigerators have scribbly gobbledygook on the refrigerator, right? They love it. This is what my grandkid gave, or my son, or my daughter. You know, that's how God is with us. We, if he sees our heart, and we're not measuring fully up, but our hearts are there, he knows we're growing, and he still ex- he accepts what we have in our heart. If you want to give a million dollars, it's in your heart to give a million dollars, but you don't have a million dollars, he counts it as if you've given a million dollars because it's in your heart to do so. There's a verse for that in Corinthians. But again, I, I wasn't planning on saying that, so I don't have the right. I'll have to get back with you on which one it is. But it says uh, there, he's, it's what you're willing is what he looks at. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you can find that, 8 or 9. Okay, so, and there's the next miracle was that Nineveh had revival, and revival is a change in your heart, and it's a change in your culture. And that's where we see there was a change in their culture because they had uh, turned, and their animals were affected even. Their animals were put on a fast, and then that probably hurt their economy somewhat. That wasn't the most happy change, but there was a change in the culture. So Jonah was angry. They had responded to his message. I mean... He's a rare preacher. You know, most preachers want you to respond to their message. But Jonah was angry. He went outside the city, and he would watch what would happen to him. And then in verse 4 of chapter 4, the Lord answers Jonah after Jonah said, I'm angry enough to die. Jonah, uh, the Lord said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And this is the question for all of us. Is it right for you to be angry in a certain situation? Is it right for you to be depressed in a certain situation? Why was Jonah angry in this situation? He had a different mindset. He had a different perspective. You know, he thought God would be glorified in a certain way through the destruction of the Ninevites. That was, that was in his, his Israelology, if I could say it that way. You know, he knew the nation of Israel needed to be victorious, and yet... It was prophesied that Nineveh would actually be a judgment to Israel. But uh, he would see God's glory in the destruction of the Ninevites. The Pharisees would see the glory of Jesus in delivering them from the Roman oppression. And the whole problem in each case was their perspective was not in line with God's perspective. And so 
Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be depressed? Is it right for you to be out of sorts when things aren't looking the way you'd like to see them? The answer is, what is God's perspective on this? How, how is God seeing this? And another thing is, what is God's spirit? Jonah didn't have the spirit in him like New Testament Christian believers do. We have the spirit in us, the spirit of Jesus. So we have more of a sense of wanting to see people saved and, and mercy, having mercy, receiving mercy. So where you are, are you angry? Is it right? What you're feeling, is it right? Is it in line with God's perspective? Is it in line with the spirit of Christ? Um, and then it goes on. He said, he prayed, and he said, isn't this what I said, that they would they would uh, respond to your mercy? In verse 4, it says, the Lord says, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city, and he sits on the side of the city. God prepares a plant for shade, and Jonah loves that plant. He was grateful for it. The next morning, the plant is struck by a worm and dies, and then again, Jonah says, it's better for me to die than to live. And God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? You know, what's going on here? What is this plant? They say it's a gourd or something, but he was there watching to see what would happen. He was frustrated, angry. He loves this gourd that comes up. It provides him shade. It provides him some relief from the sun. And he's thankful. And... Then the next day it disappears. It's it's gone. What does that say to us? There are fleeting blessings. Sometimes sometimes we we attach ourselves to things that we don't need to attach ourselves to, and the what we place our value on in life often is just a fleeting thing that is here today and it's not going to be here tomorrow. And that's okay. You value the good things that God has given you. You're grateful. You're thankful. But I think what the message is in this chapter is that God is saying you need to put your values on even greater things, things of eternal value. And so he's saying you, were, you had pity on the plant which you have not labored or made to grow, and it came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not have pity on these Ninevites? In other words, the soul is going to last forever. Should we not care for things that are lasting, everlasting? And again, it's not wrong to be thankful. You should be thankful for all your temporary blessings. But the idea is to place more value on that which is eternal. And so that is what I think is going on there. And uh, again, it's an issue of do we have God's view? Now, we're, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, last week, I, told, I showed you how uh, the prayer that Jonah prayed could easily be a prophetic indication of Jesus' own prayer. And here in this passage here with the plant and the shade and the sun burning upon his head and the wind blasting upon him, uh, we can see a parable even of what Jesus did in this. You know, this is showing you there was relief. Jonah was under the light, and if you will, under the light of God's decree, God's law, God's way, and he wasn't doing well under it, so he got some relief from the shade that protected him. And what we see in the Old Testament is we see some temporary relief, some temporary shade. There's an exposure. The law exposes sin. And then there were sacrifices to be made, and so the priests would offer the sacrifices, but it would only always be temporary. 
And so it would never be a lasting provision. And they'd feel the uh, burn of the sun again. And they'd desire that shade again. And so there'd be another sacrifice, and they would take care for a little bit, but it would just be ongoing until we get to Jesus. God provided a plant that was a temporary provision, but in Jesus, he provided the vine, and it was an everlasting provision. And Jesus provides the everlasting relief. Are you being uh, beaten down by the law? Are you being beaten down by a sense of your sin? You can come under Jesus. That's the shade. You can come under the shade of the gospel, and it will keep you from the blast of sun again. It will keep you from the wind blowing again, the the wind of the curse, I believe. The worm eating that plant, the worm is sin. Sin eats up the sacrifice, but the worm could not eat up Jesus' sacrifice. And that's where the protection is, that's where the relief is, that's where you have shade. And so it's prophesied in Isaiah 32, verse 2, about the Messiah. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. You ever get in, you know, in China there was a place called Stone Forest and there was these huge rock formations and we'd get into the cleft of one of these rock formations and get shelter from the burning heat of the sun and it was a cool, wonderful, refreshing spot. And this is talking about Jesus. He is a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. That's the provision the shade that keeps the sun of the law beating upon you and even turns that sun, that light, that exposure of your sin into a light of life. Praise God. Light of life in Jesus. He takes the sun and makes it. But Psalm 121, 5 and 6 talks about the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Jesus is the shade. Jesus is the provision. He will not wither away overnight. He always lives to make intercession for you, Hebrews 7.25. And that is the glory, the good news of what we have in in Christ. And so we close. The last verse of Jonah kind of leaves it hanging. The last verse says, should I not pity them? And and we've already gone over that verse. But it's kind of like there's no wrap-up to the story. There's no conclusion it just kind of like, okay, what did Jonah say after that? Or what happened after that? It just leaves with what the Lord said. And there's instruction even there for us. We are always to keep our ears open for what the Lord's going to say next. We walk, our faith walk is, is not just, oh, it's over, it's done. But every day we're looking, okay, what's, what's next, Lord? There's no conclusion until he returns and brings us to the next stage. But as Jonah leaves you hanging... It's hanging on his word. And we go forth, we hang on his word. And he will continue to speak as we are being held in attention. You know, you can go and forget and you don't hear from him. But if, you, if you're still listening, waiting, that conversation is still going. And that's how we go with faith. Amen? So Amen. let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word and instruction in Jonah, and I just pray that you would bring encouragement this week to each person here. We are thankful. We give thanks to you, not just this week and on Thanksgiving, but all the time, because uh, your provision is all the time, not just overnight, but for eternity. And your love is everlasting. And so we go forth with that. Thank you, Lord. 
in Jesus' name, amen.